0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Akhil Sharma, author of An Obedient Father and Family Life. His work has won the Penn Hemingway Award, a Folio Prize for Fiction, and has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic Monthly, and Best American Short Stories. Sharma was born in India and emigrated to America at age eight. His novel Family Life is the fictionalized yet close account of his life. The novel opens as the Mishra family is moving from Delhi to Queens. Soon after, the eldest of two sons has an accident in a swimming pool that leaves him blind, brain dead, and unable to move. In Sharma's real life, his brother lived for 30 years after the accident. His novel focuses on the years surrounding the character's accident and what it was like for Ajay, the main character, to become a secondary figure in his family as his parents dedicated their lives to the care of his brother. We began the conversation discussing how Sharma likes to talk about family life in terms of his real life or as a work of fiction.
1: You know, I think of it as a novel. I think of it as a novel because there are many things inside the book which are not true. So, for example, there's a chapter where Ajay tells lies in school. In my own life, what occurred was I told everybody at school that I didn't have a brother. And this was because I felt that either I wouldn't be able to explain how terrible it was uh, that my brother was gone or that they would not understand. And the fact that I felt ashamed of that and putting into the book the lie of omission or of erasing my brother would not have been as dramatic as telling as him telling lies about how great his brother had been. And so in these sort of ways, in many of these ways, the book is different from my own life. Some of the events are not the same, though they have very close correlates. So that's one way that the novel is different from my own life. Another way is that it doesn't attempt to mimic the full horror of what it was like to be in that house. Instead, it focuses on certain emotions and carries them through. So that was another a second thing that was going on for me. When I think of the book I think of it as a novel because it it you know whenever we write a character it's not us you know and it's uh, we're making all these selections and we're excluding all of the we're excluding so many things that it cannot be us and so it's almost it's always a character i imagine that even when you're writing non-fiction it feels that way it feels sort of false you know i prefer to talk about it as a novel but almost always out of vanity I I would like to have acknowledged all the art that went into the into this seeming simplicity. You know, my first book was about uh, a fifty-eight-year-old child molester uh, in India who worked for the Delhi Municipal Education Department, and people kept wanting to talk about it as my as somehow being derived from my own life. And to, and of course, you know, things are derived from our own life. It's it's just sort of that's how unsophisticated readers talk about things. And you have to meet them where they at at the point that they're at. And so you, uh, when you need to clarify, you clarify. Sometimes you have to say yes, that was for my own life. So these sort of things you just you just do. I prefer to have it uh, considered a novel.
0: In family life, which is told in first person from Ajay's point of view. You created such an intimacy. You have enmeshed the reader into Ajay's life and his feelings, and it's so close to him. But it's not claustrophobic, and I'm wondering technically how you set out to achieve this, what your goals were, and if you thought about this a lot when you were writing.
1: That intimacy, that sense of uh... Creating a voice that is true and that we're resonating with—that's the thing that I that I always seek. And the reason that that intimacy is generated is you generate it by finding uh, a voice that allows the reader to resonate. So what you do is you write sentences which are almost immediately legible, and then what is being said inside these sentences feels both true. Like this is you know this this is how human beings behave and we have a reaction to it. So that's one thing. The other thing is making sure that the reader never loses engagement with the character, even when the character is doing heinous things, repulsive things, which Ajay does not do, but in my first book, uh, the character does heinous things. And so keeping the reader very, very close to the story, again, that requires various different techniques.
0: One of the things I noticed when I read it On the first page, I'm just going to read a few of the first sentences. It says, My father has a glum nature. He retired three years ago, and he doesn't talk much. Left to himself, he can remain silent for days. When this happens, he begins brooding. He begins thinking strange thoughts. Recently, he told me that I was selfish, that I had always been selfish, that when I was a baby, I would start to cry as soon as he turned on the TV. I am 40, and he is 72. When I first read this, I thought, wow, this this writer took a lot of attention to the order of these sentences. He could have maybe started with, I am 40 and my father is 72. So I'm just curious about how much for you as a writer in your process, sentence order and the painstaking attention you take to that.
1: Because I'm focused on generating emotion. As soon as you have two people inside a sentence, you have sort of the potential of drama. So with this, the opening sentence, "My father has a glum nature," there is the narrator and then there is the father, and so that automatically creates the possibility of drama. And then the idea of one person observing or commenting on the other creates emotion. That is, you know, my father has a glum nature, that's potentially compassionate. You know, because glum itself is such an odd word. And so I was I was very aware of these things. And then he retired three years ago, and he doesn't talk much. Left to himself, he can remain silent for days. You know, then you begin to tell a story about somebody else. I was just very aware of, of this character, how he is always offering compassion to others, that he's always aware of others, that he's always that he's willing to tell other people's stories. The thing that I noticed, you know, I was reading, you had asked me to pick a passage that uh, that I'm pleased with, or that took a lot of time. One of the things that I was, uh, and so for me, I, I picked the opening, and one of the things that I was struck with was the sort of the weird moments of physical description that are a bit detached from the tone of the action. So the voice is very quiet and is very simple, And the actions that these characters are doing are strange and absurd. You know, the the narrator tickling his father. And then the description is also sort of a little bit detached. You know, uh, know, so get away, he squeaked as he fell back and tried to wriggle away. Stop being a joker, I'm not kidding. My father is, is a sort of golden color, his skin hangs loosely from beneath his chin. His long, thin earlobes the way some old people have. And in that, that physical description, which is a, a bit detached from the movement, from the motion that is occurring in the event, I find uh, sort of an unstated sadness and unstated uh, separation from from the events. That the narrator is doing certain things which are funny and active, but the way he is observing things, the way he's commenting on them, are a little bit detached, and that detachment, to me, feels like somebody who is just trying to get along in the world uh, and so is responding in as cheerful a way as possible, but he himself is at a slight distance from the event. So all of these things I was aware of, and but it did take sort of working at it, you know, just sort of, who is this person that I'm talking about? What is this world that I'm, de- that I'm creating? And then once you have a sense of even the world, how to make it realistic. You know, realistic in the sense, not just that, oh, human beings behave in a sort of general way, but realistic in the sense of uh, just absolute unpredictability, the complete surprise that we can experience when we see human beings doing what human beings do.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Akil Sharma, author of Family Life. So in this story, there's two brothers, Ajay and Birju, and Birju is the elder. They come uh, from Delhi to America when Ajay is about eight. And then within the first year and a half, they are spending the summer with their friend, their aunt. And um, Birju, who has this bright future ahead and wants to be a surgeon, is goes swimming in a swimming pool one day and dives in and he hits his head and he's he's knocked out and underwater for three minutes which causes severe brain damage and he's brain damaged for the rest of the book and in your real life survived for 30 years exactly. The story is really told through Ajay's point of view and it's really him dealing, most of the book is him dealing with the aftermath of this accident and his relationship with his family and the world and himself. And how did you, as you wrote, choose details from real life versus fiction? Was this something really conscious? Did it just, was there a subconscious level where you just started writing and you knew?
1: A part of me was a real desire to memorialize my brother and uh, memorialize my parents' sacrifice. And then also to memorialize my community, the Indian community, and how hard they worked uh, in the 70s and 80s, You know what their life was like. When an immigrant community is pounding itself, oftentimes the details of that life gets, get lost just because they're moving forward so much that they don't have time to really even be in the present. And so whenever possible, I would choose details that were from from my own life uh, and from the life that I remember. But it was always, of course, the can it handle the, the test of uh, relevancy and can it handle the, the test of being interesting?
0: Throughout the book, Ajay is... I mean, it's like he's second in the family because Berju takes so much. He's in a hospital for two years, but then the family buys a home where they can care for him. And it seems like in some ways he made the ultimate sacrifice because the parents, it's their child. That's their priority. But did do you think Ajay, and I guess, you know, really you— Lost something of your of your life, or that he lost something of his life because his parents were so dedicated to the brother that he just had to not only make up for all the expectations that Berju couldn't do, but was almost secondary.
1: I grew up with a lot of peer, uh, and first of all, yes, certainly I did lose an enormous amount, and the character loses an enormous amount by being uh uh by by having all of his parents' attention go to the sick child uh certainly that is the case uh when you're living a life like that, you don't actually know what is it what it is that you're missing right we don't oftentimes we don't know what are the opportunities that are being lost in my own life uh I wake up every morning full of fear. You know, like whenever I wake up, it's very hard for me to sleep late. Uh, when I wake up at 6.30 uh, or 7, the I wake up as if somebody's punched me in the chest. Right? I wake up just sort of almost gasping with fear. And it comes from, I believe, this when I was a child, the sense that not only that things were never going to be okay, uh, it comes from that. And it comes from the, you know, my parents were very angry, uh, and they were often very angry at me, which is understandable, just because you know, if you're unhappy all the time, you're angry, and uh, if you're angry, you oftentimes lash out at the person who is weakest to you, you know. So, in a, for example, in an employment situation, the employer is going to lash, the boss is going to your manager is going to lash out at you versus the person above him. And so for me, it uh, there was a sense of, you know, you, when at a certain point you keep wanting your parents' love and they keep rejecting you, and so you begin to feel almost ridiculous for wanting. You begin to find your own desires uh, absurd and uh, deserving of mockery and and so you develop a, a sense of self-contempt so all of this occurred uh and these are horrible things also what occurred was you know enormous sort of sensitivity to others uh an enormous awareness of others and how to be inside a situation uh a, in enormous ambition uh, great sort of commitment to doing the right thing, you know. My, if you grow up feeling that you know that you're never going to be loved, one of the things that you then begin to think is, you know, if I'm not going to be loved, let me at least be deserving of love, you know. And so that's uh, so. All of these very, very good things came out of it. So all of these, so uh, very bad things occurred. Very bad things uh, whose consequence is is permanent is going to be permanent but also really good things came out of it. Knowing everything I know now, I would not, of course, make the trade. I would not choose to be uh, to have had this occur to my brother, not just because of him, but because of what occurred to me. Uh, still, if I'm going to be truthful, I have to recognize the very good things that came out of it instead of just, instead of only the very bad things.
0: Would you be a parent yourself? Maybe you are, I don't know
1: uh no i my wife and I do not have children uh one of the reasons that i felt I didn't want to have kids is that when when that decision was relevant uh when it was possible uh i just felt that I wouldn't be a good father i didn't have an i didn't grow up in a happy family and I didn't expect that I would be able to produce it.
0: Were were you also afraid of what it would take to be a parent when things go wrong? I mean, most people when they have kids are just like, "Oh, I'm going to have a kid," but they don't think about what it would take if if it went wrong and you saw that firsthand.
1: I did. I mean, I was aware of sort of how much resources were required. Like it it seemed an almost insurmountable thing.
0: Well, it's interesting because the parents in the book in so many ways are painted and are heroes. Um, but they're also can be so cruel to Ajay. And I'm just wondering about that dichotomy. Is that, I mean, do we live with that anyway? Was it just magnified in the circumstances? What 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 does a hero really mean?
1: I mean, in our ordinary lives, we do very good things. We do very good things every single day. You know, that is, something that has to be recognized. You know, the character at one point says about his brother after the accident that that he wishes he knew how much, that he had known how much he loved his brother. You know, that he didn't, he hadn't known and he was surprised by it and he would have lived things in a slightly different way. And the parents, I think, after the accident are aware of how much they love their child and are willing to do uh, everything they can for him. To me, that's an enormously admirable thing. The problem is, of course, that we live in a world of limited resources. You know, at least most of us do. And so, for us, you know, we have to make choices. And you know, in a situation like this, I feel that the you know the parents made certain choices. I'm not sure whether they made the right choice or the wrong. They may they might have made the right choice. You know, that in a situation like this, you take care of the one who most needs resources, and the consequences are that resources that are going to be taken away from the other child. That might have been the right decision on their part. And I think that this is sort of true of uh, of any fa- of any family, that, you know, we're, we can be very loving and simultaneously we can behave badly towards the people we love. Uh, and maybe that's why human beings are so resilient. You know, they're so tough that they can have lots of bad things occur and still be okay.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Akil Sharma, author of Family Life. You know, one of the aspects of of this book that I'm sure you also experienced in your life is, and you mentioned earlier, is the community, is that, you know, in the book, when the parents moved Birju to their home, And they chose a community that had a lot of Indians that were coming in and immigrating to America. So there was a nice sense of community and belonging. But it seemed like the community was so completely based on conditional love, where if you're a success and you have intelligent children who are going to Ivy League colleges, people want to have you over for dinner. But if the dad is revealed to be an alcoholic. They don't want to associate with you again. And that it seemed like that swayed back and forth, depending which was the most recent circumstance. You know, in depicting this, I'm sure there was truth in that. How do you make peace with a community like that?
1: This love is not, it's not the love of, uh, you know, family. It's like a work environment almost, like how in a work, you know, friendships that occur at work are probably not genuine friendships. You know, they're based on proximity, they're based on convenience. It's inappropriate. It For for the family, it would be inappropriate to expect the community to, uh, to love them, you know, to understand them and to love them. Uh, the community values them for certain things. And the, you know, even the mother is, is attempting to manage that love, is trying to ma- manipulate that love by saying, you know, he's in a coma instead sort of that he's brain damaged. Because she's aware of what the fam, what the community might want. I, I, it just felt to me that this is that this was okay behavior. You know that they're not, these are not people who love you. These are there. There are some of these people who are very good, and they, when they, that, to the extent that they're willing to value the very good things inside you, uh, inside the family, then that's a that shows something wonderful about the community. To the extent that. Uh, they get frightened and turn away from the things that are that they view as disrespectful. That also is okay. You know that that uh, that it was never more than that. It was never it was never intimacy. It was always sort of admiration and respect.
0: Well, I know we talked about this, but can you read a short passage from something you wrote? It could have been hard to write or tricky or just something that you um, felt like you succeeded at?
1: So for me, the opening of the book, if if that's okay, I would read that to you. Yeah. My father has a glum nature. He retired three years ago and he doesn't talk much. Left to himself, he can remain silent for days. When this happens, he begins brooding. He begins thinking strange thoughts. Recently, he told me that I was selfish, that I had always been selfish, that when I was a baby, I would start to cry as soon as he turned on the TV. I'm 40 and he is 72. When he said this, I began tickling him. I was in my parents' house in New Jersey, on a sofa in their living room. Who's the sad baby, I said. Who's the baby that cries all the time? Get away, he squeaked as he fell back and tried to wriggle away. Stop being a joker. I'm not kidding. My father is a sort of golden color. Skin hangs loosely from beneath his chin. He has long, thin earlobes the way some old people have. My mother is more cheerful than my father. Be like me, she often tells him. See how many friends I have look how I'm always smiling. But my mother gets unhappy too. And when she does, she sighs and says, I'm bored. What is this life we lead? Where is Ajay? What was the point of having raised him? For me, there, there's a couple of things I'm very sort of proud of. You know, the, the biggest thing, the thing that feels most important is the, uh, the boldness of starting a story uh, which is so far ahead of the actual events of the narrative, yeah you know, beginning with like in the uh say thirty years or so from thirty two years from when the story actually starts there's a boldness to that, and then the fact that the novel is not doesn't have symmetry that is the ending does not go back go to where go to go, return to the beginning it isn't a perfectly bracketed uh narrative. Uh, so that's one reason that I'm very pleased with this thing that there's uh, a daring to it another is the weirdness of the behavior both the tenderness of it and the uh, and the weirdness of it and the sort of microaggression that exists within it uh, the responding to the father and responding to him in this strange way and then the descriptions which feel slightly uh, uh, off the beat of the descriptions is different from the beat of the actions, and that also uh suggests hidden uh emotions hidden thoughts and so all of these little things i feel I feel very proud of you know they're like I was reading this thing and I thought wow this is a a good writer wrote this you know this which is not typical of how I respond to my own writing uh but i felt very happy when I read it.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Akhil Sharma, author of Family Life. Can you share a passage by another author that influenced you or speaks to you as a writer?
1: This is Chekhov. This is the story Yusef, G-U-S-E-B. I'll read the first two paragraphs of a section. Yusef goes back to the sick bay and lies down on his cot. As before, he suffers from some vague yearning, and he cannot figure out what he wants. There is a weight on his chest, a throbbing in his head. His mouth is so dry that he can hardly move his tongue. He dozes and mutters, and tormented by nightmares, coughing and stuffiness. Falls fast asleep towards morning. He dreams that they have just taken the bread out of the oven in the barracks, and he goes into the oven and has a steam bath, lashing himself with birch branches. He sleeps for two days, and on the third day, two sailors come from topside and carry him out of the sick bay. He is sewn up in canvas, and to weigh him down, two iron bars are put in with him. Sewn up in the canvas, he comes to resemble a carrot or a black radish, wide at the head, narrow towards the foot. Before sunset, he is taken out on deck and laid on a plank. One end of the plank rests on the rail and the other on a box placed on a stool. Discharged soldiers and the ship's crew stand around him with their hats off and so of course they this is when they drop him into the sea i I, I mean the most uh, stunning moment is when you know we think he's still alive and they've come they've sewn him into canvas uh, and they're going to go drop him out uh, uh, over the side of the, the boat and that confusion we experience and the fact that youuf continues to be described as he, he still remains alive, even as he's as the body is being dropped off the side of the boat. Chekhov is extraordinary. I mean, there's not there's nobody like him.
0: Where do you write? Uh,
1: I have a, a small area in my apartment. It's a I have a two bedroom apartment. Uh, one of the bedrooms has basically a uh, a closet, a narrow closet that's maybe five feet deep. I like the idea of being contained, of being in a very small place. When I write, I like to feel that what I'm doing is almost like making a bomb. For me, there's a great deal of comfort in that.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I I oftentimes go to the Met Museum. It's thrilling to see, you know, art that was made 3,000 years ago and see how relevant it is and how beautiful it is even right now. That this awareness that, oh, you know, human beings have always been the same. They've always been the same and they will always be the same. Uh, that's where I like to go.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: It's hard to get people to read your stuff. I mean, I find it uh, very difficult because all of my friends have their own work to do and they don't really want to read my stuff. Uh, I have a very good friend named Ray Isle who works for for a food and wine magazine. He is the person that I turn to most and I can rely on sort of completely.
0: How do you deal with rejection?
1: Oh, I curl up in a little ball, and then uh, I know that in a day or two it'll pass. That's sort of just the awareness that, oh, it hurts right now, and then it'll go away.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Uh, Most recently, it's been cosmopolitan. Just this idea that we can lead a sophisticated life. you know, And sophisticated in the sense of emotionally sophisticated, that we can have happiness, that we can have sadness, uh, that we can we can make choices that'll lead to that lead to happiness. For me, that that word, cause and and contains it.
0: You've been listening to First Draft: A Dialogue on Writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Akhil Sharma, author of the novel Family Life. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft: A Dialogue on Writing and click like. And on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.